In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. Uh, I uh, just one co-host today, Aaron Lammer. How are you, sir? Hello, hello, hello. Once again, Evan living a better life than either of us. Uh, this week on the show, Aaron, I talked to Baxter Holmes. Oh, Baxter Holmes did that um, story about AAU basketball yes. that uh, rocked uh, the NBA podcast I listened to recently. <laughs> it truly did. Uh, Baxter writes about the NBA for ESPN, and he writes these kind of in-depth features from sort of the margins of uh, NBA, or sometimes they're from the margins. Yeah, that last piece was about uh, basically the incredible wear and tear that youth basketball is putting on basketball players, which is why they're all these like freaky terrible injuries for like 19 and 20 year old nba players um but he has also written uh one of my favorite sports stories of all time which is about um how the nba became addicted to peanut butter and jelly sandwiches you remember that story oh yes 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 uh so we talked about that the pb and j story he wrote a uh, piece earlier this year about the san antonio spurs coach greg popovich and his dinner parties and uh and then he also wrote a piece this summer about magic johnson and the incredible dysfunction within the Lakers organization. Did you read that one? I did. It was, uh, I believe, uh, refuted by Magic Johnson himself. Yeah, on uh, ESPN, no less. On ESPN's airwaves, Wal Baxter was also on ESPN on a different channel talking about the story. Uh, I asked him about what that day was like and uh, generally what it is like to cover the NBA for ESPN, one of the NBA's largest partners. We are uh, brought to you, as always, uh, through the generous support of people like MailChimp, who also support things like Read This Summer. Uh, Max, where can people find out about Read This Summer? At readthissummer.com, of course. Uh, Jenna Wortham is bringing a group of a dozen writers uh, to the Decatur Book Festival this year. It's in Atlanta in September. Evan Ratliff, uh, who is not here, will also be there. Uh, but if you're looking for something to read this summer... Go to readthesummer.com. Check out Jenna's picks for the books you should be reading. Uh, here is Max and Baxter Holmes. Hey, Baxter. Hi, Max. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, it's a long time coming, sir. You're here from Los Angeles. Uh, I'm glad we, we got to do it in person. Likewise. I was ready, if we could not do it in person, to take it to the phone. <laughs> oh. I was going to take it to the phone. Well, hey, interviews are always way better in person. That's yeah, the... they're much better. Although, you know, like Terry Gross has this whole thing. She doesn't interview people in person. Everything, really? Yeah, everything's on the phone. I've never heard that. I've always heard in person is the best way to go. It's a, a very steadfast rule for her. I interviewed her and um, I like really had to fight to do it in person. She really didn't want to. I think it's all about like just being as present as possible with the audio, just like with the person's okay. voice. Well, also, she really likes to look at her notes. I mean, yeah, it's a different medium. I get it. Yeah. But uh, 
Anyway, it's good to be in person with you. That's the point of the story. Yeah, hey. Uh, man, I have really been looking forward to talking to you. I feel like we're in a, um, a little bit of a dead zone of the NBA summer, if there is such a thing anymore. It doesn't feel like it. <laughs> it always feels like there's something right around the corner. The league, quote unquote, goes to sleep in August. That's when a lot of people go on vacation, get married, etc. But for people who, in my position who are trying to work on in-depth stories, this is the month where I can get a lot of work done. So I, I like this time of year. This is one of my favorite times of the year. All right. Well, can you explain to me how you see yourself in this sort of like NBA media reporting ecosystem? Like what what is your spot there? I focus on in-depth stories around and about the NBA. And I try to tell as many human stories as I can. Anybody who reads my work probably senses that I'm not diving into as much of X's and O's or analysis as some of my colleagues do. I'm not a newsbreaker. I just try to do features and enterprise work and work that is probably a bigger commitment for the reader, certainly, but is a little bit meatier. People can sink their teeth into and get to really know a subject. And hopefully they feel that it's a story that's worth their time. You've written a lot about food and about health as they relate to the NBA, and we'll, we'll talk about it, but is that your beat, or how would you define your beat? I don't, I mean, my beat, I'm just looking for good stories. Um, I've ended up in, in a roundabout way, like I have no knowledge of science or sports <laughs> science or sports medicine. I have no background in food or wine or anything like that. I just always, I tend to look carefully, and this was, I was trained by an editor years ago when I was at the LA Times like this, to look maybe in places where other people weren't looking or actually here, I'll give you the anecdote that kind of is a driving force. It wasn't from this editor, but this editor reinforced it. It was actually from um, Walter Robinson from the Boston Globe, played by Michael Keaton in the movie Spotlight. Yeah. Um, when I was an intern at the Globe in 2008, he talked about how, imagine like a tree of fruit and each piece of fruit is like a story. He said, we as journalists often reach for the hardest, you know, the highest, most difficult stories whatever it might be, some incredibly difficult investigation or whatever the case might be. But he said, in the midst of that, we often miss a lot of stories that are right in front of us um, that might be just within arm's reach. And so I always try to, um, and then another editor, Steve Padilla at the Los Angeles Times, who's marvelous, always talked about being open, always being open to ideas. So that's my way of saying that I try to be open to a lot of ideas and to kind of let my curiosity within reason guide me down whatever I think is interesting in front of me and I want to know about. And is that something you can get better at? Yeah, for sure. Because you can't you can't go down every path. You have to decide, you know, maybe when you're listening to somebody, they say something interesting and you're like, oh, wait, tell me a little bit more about that. And so they crack open a door and then you can, maybe there is something that's really there and you, you know, it can lead to a great story or maybe there's not really. So you have to decide, there's only so much time in the day. Right. So you have to decide how to navigate that. So like the place you can get better is is just having a little better instincts about what are the like paths to follow. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm I'm better at this now than I was when I first started. You know, if in the beginning I thought like everything was a story, it's like, well, not everything's a story. You got to think about, you know, what are th- what are like five or six great things I can sink my teeth into over the course of the year and try to tell them in a definitive fashion that will hold up really well. So that's part of the goal. Like uh, one of the ways that I think about what you do, right? The NBA has become this like not even month to month or week to week or day to day, but like minute to minute 
media enterprise. And then you're, it feels to me, at least from the outside, like you're tacking really far in the other direction. And like the peanut butter and jelly story is just as good today as it was when it came out a year and a half ago. So on that front, first of all, thank you. I appreciate that. I think that people are bombarded with stories constantly. And somebody once told me that the most sacred thing is the reader's attention. It's always been the easiest thing to lose. You can lose it at any moment in the story. They can give up on it. But it's never been easier because there's so many other options. And if they're reading on their phone, like an entire world is at their fingertips. So you have to earn their attention, but I think it's it's never been harder. To that point, I think if there's anything that I'm really fighting for, it's for people's memory. There are stories you've interviewed a ton of people who have written landmark stories that you look back at a specific event and you think of that story and that piece of work. And some of these are far more serious than some of the stuff I get into, so make no bones about it. But I love that. I love the the notion of trying to write a story that sticks with people. What does that require? It requires really compelling characters. It requires in-depth reporting. You have to take people on a journey. It needs to be um, so rich and something they didn't know. And what's a story that I can tell well enough that it will hold up, that it will it will earn someone's memory? There's so many stories that come and go, and they're they're especially in today's news cycle where they're gone in, in a minute, and nobody remembers anything. And so I'm I'm fighting for that. Can we talk about the uh, peanut butter and jelly story? Absolutely. Because I think it fits. I think it fits with what we're talking about. And uh, and it also feels like one of those things where that might have been a hard one to see. Or at least hard to see that it was going to have the life that it had. Do you see you want the origin story? That's right. Yeah. Okay. So when I was an intern at the Boston Globe in 2008, the Celtics and Lakers were in the NBA Finals. And I remember seeing some story at some point that summer about how Kevin Garnett had been making the Celtics eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches all season. And I thought, like, oh, that's kind of quirky. That seems weird. You know, there's a lot of money in the NBA and whatever. Years later, when I became a full-time NBA beat writer, I was, it was, interestingly enough, the Globe hired me from the LA Times to come cover the Celtics for them. And I was going around the league, and I would be in different locker rooms and practice facilities. I would see peanut butter and jelly all the time. And I just thought, there's so much money in the NBA. There's nutritionists and chefs and whatnot. Why is this very simple snack that you would equate with childhood in all these locker rooms. And I remember mentioning that to an editor and he said, yeah, just go ahead. So that's how it began. But I didn't understand the reaction that people would have to it, which reinforced to me how powerful things are from people's childhood Mm -hmm. and the ways in which human things are far more relatable than like a lot of these athletes, they're super tall, super famous. They are super athletic. They're in the top 1% of what they do. The world of fame and wealth that they occupy, most people will never even dream and can imagine. But they are human. And so I try to find areas that you know relate them on a lot of other levels to everyone else because you otherwise can't make a connection with them. And I, you know that story taught me, reinforced that in ways that I... Never quite anticipated. I just thought it was like, oh, this is interesting. I want to understand why. And then it led me down a path that, um, I mean, I, I it came out two years ago and I hear about it almost every single day. <laughs> All right. So that story, uh, for anyone who's not read it, is basically about how every team in the NBA is addicted to peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. 
And they are in every locker room. The most famous players in the world freak out if they don't have them before games. Everyone takes them certain ways. And your story sort of tracks the rise of the peanut butter and jelly in the NBA, which is a totally like counterintuitive idea. And what was it like reporting that story out? Mm-hmm. So you're like, you've got access to Steph Curry or whoever. And the question you want to ask is about peanut butter and jelly yeah. sandwiches. Well, like... <laughs> when you when you when you zig that far from like the rest of of the NBA media, how do how do the players and coaches and front office people how do people react to that? Some of it's refreshing. I mean, I do feel weird at times, and I'll try to couch it and say, I know this sounds crazy, but I'm working on a story about this. And there's times when some people will say like, that's actually a great story, and then they'll they'll be like, you know, it reminds me of, and then they'll. They'll it'll take them down a further path, but yeah, there's there's a feeling of you know coming forward and saying like okay, this is gonna sound kind of weird or a little crazy or a little out of the box, but just bear with me. Um, I mean, like, are yeah. you putting in like an official request with like the Warriors PR department? Sure, like, yeah, yeah, or I'll be yeah, exactly. I'm here, um, and, I'm here and for certain, the peanut butter and jelly story. Well, I, I'm up there hopefully for a variety of things, and that's one box I'm trying to check. Or, um, but yeah, that's that's the kind of story where I just chip at. I don't remember exactly how long. Oh, that's I interesting. On so, so you're not working on one thing at a time. You're working on a bunch oh, of things at a time. Man, no, I have a bunch of Google Docs of all kind of ideas. I'm trying to chip away at a lot of things. These certain things take priority. Given, you know, the timing of it needs to come out around here or we want to try to publish it in this window. But I have all kinds of things that I'm working on at once. If you get access to someone, you'll just go down your list? I guess sometimes, yeah. I mean, depending on who they are and how relevant they are to a particular story. Some people might just be one question. Some people it might be, you know, I guess maybe two um, or like two different ideas that I want to talk about. Um, But yeah, I try to be efficient. That story blew up to like a crazy degree. At least that was my experience of it. I joked that that um, if I were to suddenly depart this world, that it might make the first sentence of my obit. Yeah, <laughs> we won a James Beard Award. Uh, it was yeah. all over the place for a long time. Did you know what you had on your hands? Like w- no, when when that no. story published, did it feel like just another like tossed off thing? Yeah, I thought it was. I thought it was a fun story, and I was proud of it. But I mean, the reaction I never saw coming. Why do you think it had the life that it did? Why did it resonate so much? I think food is a very universal thing. I think it's one of the few things that unites everybody. If you're here, you you eat, you come to the table. And food is deeply tied to memory in a really powerful way. And people love, there was a lot of big name players in that story. Um, some of the stories in there were pretty wild, like the peanut butter and jelly war involving the the Warriors or Dwight Howard um, being addicted to sugar and the one thing that he refused to give up was peanut butter and jelly or there was a lot of stuff in there it was kind of wild <laughs> yeah definitely <laughs> yeah I just reread it before you came here and it's like um... also the art for that story was really good which I didn't do I obviously but I remember when I saw it saw like the layout of what it was going to look like I was like but well, these are some of the best photos I've ever seen <laughs> <laughs> so they are some beautiful looking sandwiches <laughs> what was uh, what was the reaction within the league to that story you know I got a lot of messages from people in the league and I think I got a message after the fact because they weren't included in the story, but like the, the Charlotte Hornets grill their peanut butter and jellies. And there was just like funny, quirky things. But people told me like, man, I love that story. I've seen those sandwiches in the locker rooms before the game. I had no idea, you know, about all the different ways around the league that people were obsessed with them. So, Well, that's what I was yeah. thinking about when I read it today, too. It's like how many people must have seen those sandwiches? Yeah. Again, a, a small thing can lead to a much larger thing. You just... You have to be open to it. And I had some editors who really drilled that into me. And 
a small thing can lead to nothing too but i would rather i would rather know and have that small itch of curiosity satisfied than to feel as if i'm potentially walking away from a great story Hiya. I'm going to put uh, Baxter on hold for just a second because I want to tell you about Substack. Substack is a publishing platform that lets writers make money from subscriptions. This week's featured Substack writer, Luke O'Neill, publisher of Hellworld, which you can find at luke.substack.com. Luke's a journalist. He's based in Boston. He's written for Esquire, The Guardian, New York. He had a uh, piece in the Washington Post magazine recently uh, that we featured on longform.org. Luke's Substack newsletter features dispatches from the new American dystopia on the nightmares of capitalism, cops, and other cancers. In it, he combines uh, sometimes profane, first-person humor with deeply humane reporting and a lyrical style. It's completely bereft of commas. Read it, and you'll see you can subscribe to Hellworld for a 20% discount by going to luke.substack.com slash longform. Again, that's Luke dot substack dot com slash long form go check it out you'll like luke's hell world and uh i mean you won't like his hell world but you like the writing and uh you'll like substack if you're a writer looking to uh, get paid for your work check them out thanks substack let's get back to baxter do you feel like you're um on a roll now with those kinds of stories Mm-mm. I don't ever feel like I'm on a roll with anything. Um, <laughs> I'm just, every story you start from zero. I don't think about the stories that came before. It's a blank canvas. The work, you start over. But you're working this beat now. I mean, like, you have a story like that peanut butter and jelly story or whatever. And I feel like the next time you call the Warriors and you're like, I want to talk about... Uh, this dinner that Steve Kerr had where he had his like breakthrough of how the offense was going to work. Like they're like, Oh, Baxter's doing his thing again. I've definitely formed relationships around the league and outside the league. And people know, I guess my work and kind of, I don't want to say what I'm about, but they know my work. And so they know me a little bit better. Why don't you want to say they they know what you're about? Well, just that I'm going to take a lot of time. I'm really going to try to get to the bottom of something that I'm not just going to come there and, do one interview with one person that I may try to interview 50 people and ask a bunch of really nerdy small questions to get to the bottom of a scene or to you know help place me there so I can see it and feel it because the reader needs to see it and feel it so more people have become like patient with their time but that's not everybody everybody's pressed for time anyway but a good story does build on it it helps build your your body of work in such a way that things can become not easier but it's just like if you know somebody. Yeah, people give you the benefit of the doubt. A yeah, bit. a little bit, a little bit more now. But I, I don't feel like I'm on a roll. I mean, every story is its own great challenge, and there's always, like any probably writer or reporter, there's doubts like, how am I going to bring this home? All you see are the obstacles before you, <laughs> and the ticking clock, and how am I going to make this happen? That's so, not getting any easier. I don't know. If, I mean, does that ever go away? I don't know if it does. Well, I don't know. I mean, the, yeah, the, the, I, I want to do good work and good work is hard and uh, it's supposed to be hard. I've, I've definitely come to trust the process a little bit more, but it's hard. It's hard every time. These stories that you're writing, I mean, oftentimes you just did a big piece about um, 
youth basketball and the sort of stress that's being put on young basketball players. And there's been this whole incredible and kind of shocking rash of injuries for young players in the NBA. And you just did this big two-part piece. And then, you know, it was on the front page of ESPN.com. It got this huge level of attention. Does the, like, does the stage feel big? You mean like working? It's like I'm with ESPN and yeah, like you write you write these things and 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 they're gonna find an audience. I don't think about that to be honest with you. Um, I've been fortunate to be at some places. You know, I worked my first job out of college was at the LA Times, and then I was at the Boston Globe, and these are pretty well-regarded journalism institutions, specifically for sports. Not not bad first job. Very fortunate. How'd you Um, get it? I. Worked at the student paper all throughout college in Oklahoma and where I'm from. Did internships around the country, kind of rose through the ranks, applied for an internship and an entry-level program at the LA Times and was accepted. Did you grow up like around media? How did you decide to be a journalist in so this Oklahoma? So this is a good story because it's just, I, I look back on it and laugh. But I wanted to be a tornado chaser growing up in Oklahoma. Because of the movie? Yeah. Anybody who grew up in Oklahoma in the mid-90s I think when the movie Twister came out, they thought, I want to do that. And I was I was like that. And I had my whole career plotted out. I was going to go to the University of Oklahoma. I think they have a partnership with the National Severe Storms Laboratory, which is almost on campus or close by. And then I was a sophomore in high school, 16 years old. There was a knock on the door, math class one morning, and it was the local sports editor and my high school basketball coach. And the sports editor said, I need someone to cover the team. And your coach says, you're a good writer. I warmed the bench on the team and uh, I said, well, will you pay me? And he said, yes. And I said, okay. And I'd never written a story. I enjoyed reading and writing, but I'd never written a story or any form of journalism, but I fell in love with it. And then it became an obsession. And you were covering the team while you were on the team. Yes. Which (laughs) was, yeah. Well, I mean, I had, I guess, uh, ethically fraught. It was, yeah, there was one instance, I, I later started as a senior, but I was mostly terrible. I was lacking in size, speed, skill, talent, athleticism. <laughs> and so I mostly was just an observer wearing a jersey. <laughs> I didn't know, I had no training at that point. I didn't know what I was doing. Um, but that's where the flame was lit. Yeah. And I became obsessive about reading about journalism and great journalists and understanding great stories or how they came about. And was really obsessive about it when I was in college. And so I feel very lucky that a career, like th- this passion knocked on the door one day. And I think about that because a lot, of, I mean, a lot of people go through life, they don't know what they want to do. They don't have anything that they might necessarily love to do when they get out of bed that they feel that brings some great satisfaction and joy. And one day this person knocked on the door at this formative age and set me down the path. And I try not to take that for granted. I feel very, very fortunate that that happened. When you showed up at the Globe in 2008 for that internship, what was your ambition? Like, where did you want to be? I don't know. I I wanted to try to write the kinds of stories that I loved reading, which were like feature stories, in-depth stories and whatnot. At that point, I was probably just thinking, what am I doing here? There's every other intern that I was with was an absolute rock star. All of them were tremendous reporters and writers. And I would see like Bob Bryan and Dan Shaughnessy and all these legends at the Globe Sports Department. There's so many awards around the department of like everything they've won. And you read the great sections and the bylines of all the, basically everybody who's in the Hall of Fame for sports journalism 
was there and you just feel i felt out of place i was like i just what did i want that i just didn't want to make a fool of myself <laughs> so you know try to fool them into thinking that you belong here for at least a minute and did it feel like a path was starting to form so like you went to the times you went back to the globe how are you making those choices were they part of some longer plan or was it just like this is the next thing? i don't have a plan i mean i think that the job is is really hard and i'm trying to get better very incrementally so it can be something as simple as how can i be better as a reporter to gather more detail in the moment to better describe a scene to put the reader there what kind of senses or how do i build tension in such a way that creates momentum to vault the reader forward or I'm I really love endings to stories like there's something that's really resonant that will stick with people like the final bell that you toll in a story so those are the things I'm thinking about I, and I understand this question I've gotten in interviews like job interviews like where do you see yourself in five years and it's it's Taylor I know what it's about they want it's like what are your goals what do you want to be um, I when I graduated college the market had crashed um, in 2009 Media companies and newspapers were falling apart, and that's continued. I, when I got to the LA Times Tribune Company, which owned them, I was in, they were in bankruptcy the entire time I was there. There was all these rounds of layoffs. When I got to the Globe, there was um, a sale, plenty more buyouts. ESPN has certainly gone through a lot of change, which has played out publicly. I try to focus on the story and the work. I don't look too far ahead beyond the handful of stories I'm working on and how to try to bring them home in the best way I can. I believe that. And also... I hope that doesn't sound cliche. But. No, it's not cliche, but you started in journalism in 2009, uh, which is basically the beginning of this, what feels like a uh, never-ending kind of tumble for newspapers. Yeah. And so while I'm sure that's your experience of it, like it is interesting to me how you find a path where you can do the kind of work you want to do while the sort of institutions at which you're doing it are crumbling? Yeah, the that's a really good question. I, I don't, you know, as I look back on whatever path I've forged in the day and age that I've forged it, there's part of me that thinks I just feel lucky to have survived this long and however long that may end up being. Um, What's your explanation for how you survived? I don't know. Good good fortune. I mean, here's and here's the thing I would say. I... I remember, I think it was early on at the LA Times, people who were my age, like very entry level, paid, you know, whatever the bare minimum that interns were paid, were getting cut. So it wasn't about just like, we need to get rid of, you know, top end people that have been here forever and made a lot of money. That kind of instilled in me, like, we are all numbers on a spreadsheet. Mm -hmm. So as a why I'm still here, I don't, you know, that's a question for people above me. I don't know. I just try to do the best work I can. I'm, and I'm, I don't try to mean to dodge your question. I don't have a, I don't have a good answer for you. But I was going to say something too about when I was at the Globe covering the Celtics full time in like 2013-14, I had this epiphany about the kinds of stories I wanted to tell and what it would take. And it was that I didn't see that there were a ton of people on the beat or maybe beats in general, or maybe this is just where I thought I could carve my little place out was if I was working on a story or a feature, try to make, instead of just doing three phone calls, try to make six. I'm, I wouldn't necessarily have a quota, but 
Try to talk to as many people as you can within reason. Just do twice as much work. Yeah, just try to do... I mean, make these stories as richly reported as you can within reason of, of the deadlines and whatever. So I would try to do that, and I would try to set up as many features as I could that were as enterprising as possible while on the beat. And I continued that when I moved to ESPN, but I felt like that was where I could kind of make my bones a little bit because I didn't have... I wasn't old enough and entrenched enough in the NBA and had the, the contacts and whatever else to to lean on that. But those things feel connected to me. I mean, like, if you're worried that your job can get taken away any day, then maybe you work twice as hard. Maybe. there's. I'm Look, I'm sure there's that there in, in this current environment. I also just thought these are the kind of stories I want to read in terms of, like, I really love reading richly reported stories. Yeah. So I wanted to write the kind of stories I really wanted to read. I'm going to ask you one more um, existential sad media question, and then we'll move on to how you actually do your job. Okay. Do you feel solid now? Like, do you feel like you're on solid ground now? Do you feel like you're um, more than a line on a spreadsheet? ESPN takes great care of me, and I'm, I feel very fortunate to be there. There's some super talented people I work with. I mean, you just, like, inked a new deal. You're there for a while. Yeah, I'm. I, yeah, I'm. Th- things are really good. I'm happy. I think there's probably part of me that looks at the climate I came up in and just seeing all these farewell emails and you know the sheet cake bidding adieu to people and that there'll probably always be that uncertainty but yeah i feel i feel good now i mean you can ask me tomorrow i guess (laughs) all right let's talk about sourcing i have a question about sourcing which is um how do you do that um your work in the nba yes the nba has as large a spotlight on it right now as it has ever had Mm-hmm. Every twist and turn that happens with the league stars gets documented. There's an incredible amount of attention on the day-to-day activities of these guys. And it seems to me that you are a, a small handful of people who have found a way to repeatedly tell in-depth stories from players' lives, off-the-court, front-office stuff, and Let's use the Lakers story from earlier this summer okay. as an example. You wrote a deeply reported, I don't know how many words, 5,000, 6,000 word story about dysfunction in the Lakers front office, particularly surrounding Magic Johnson. The story got a tremendous amount of attention, um, had all kinds of details that hadn't been reported before, including very colorful ones mm-hmm. about Magic. How did you report that story? I mean, it certainly helped that I covered the Lakers for three years um, for ESPN. So I knew a lot of people just from the day-to-day ins and outs of my job. I've been covering the NBA for five years now. So over that time span, just from the day-to-day, you know, the beat writing of it, and certainly in high-profile markets at high-profile institutions, you start to know people. But that wasn't a story about PB&J. Like, that was people's asses on the line, right? Yeah, I hadn't done a piece quite like that. I mean, that started um, about a year, a little more than a year ago now. And Sports Illustrated had done a story about the Dallas Mavericks and troubling culture there. And I th- some source um, reached out and said something like, if you want to take a look at a organization or like a culture or whatever, a workplace that's troubling, you should take a look at the Lakers. And so I was interested in that and started started yeah the hunt for information um, yeah well that's what I'm interested in like yeah. what does that look like so someone a source within the Lakers calls you and is like I think the Mavericks are fucked up you should look at the Staples Center mm. 
And then what do you do next? Um, I'm trying to think of what I can say here. You want to make sure that one person's opinion is not just their own opinion and that there's actually a there there. That there's something that's far more representative. So here's what I would say. In the peanut butter and jelly story, I tried to interview as many people as I could. Everybody. And it was the same way with this one. I, every tangential person I could think of who might in some way have any kind of information that would relate to any of the main characters involved, specific instances, witnesses, whatever. You're trying to contact everybody. Every single person that you can think of. And a lot of doors are shut. Right. Well, that's the difference, right? Peanut butter and jelly, like no one's got any reason not to talk to you about the sandwiches. Yeah. The Lakers, people like have their jobs on the line, right? Like there's all kinds of reasons not to talk to you. So I'm going to say this generally. This is what I try to do on a variety of stories, some of which are more sensitive than others. People may be reluctant to talk. I think a lot of what this job is, is you're trying to convince people that their voice matters and that the truth matters. And that, because a lot of people just, they're, they're cynical and they think nothing will change, you know? Whatever this is, is the way it is. It's the way it is because of the power involved and the individuals who have that power. And this is going to be that way. And so there's a there's definitely conversations where you're trying to convince people. How hard do you try? Pretty hard. I mean, no, I just give up. I'm like, okay, all right, you, you win. <laughs> no, that's it. the job is to try. The job is to try. And part of i think part of the job is you're trying to can, t- you're trying to explain to people what journalism is and the impact that it can make and i believe deeply in that in my bones what shining a light on something can do it can be a lighthearted story um it can be something more serious about youth sports you know breaking kids bodies down in a really sad way but you're often trying to tell somebody why something matters and why they should like why does this sandwich matter well you know and you give some diatribe or whatever but yeah the other stories can be far more heavy duty on that it feels to me like um there is potentially a bunch about this laker story that you can't quite talk about yeah i can't really go into sourcing and you know too much and whatnot but why well help me at least understand why it's so sensitive i mean i'm protecting a lot of individuals I mean, isn't that what sourcing is? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, yes. Uh, but again, like, that is evidence, right, of, like, the different stakes of that story. Yeah, if you, I mean, so I, I'm not going to go into sourcing too much, but I can talk about how, you know, well, one thing that was key for me is over a period of whatever the year, the, the two years that Irvin Johnson and, and Rob Palenka were both in their positions, Rob's still in his same position as the general manager of the Lakers, different people are going to have different experiences. They're going to be in different departments. And what you're trying to understand is like, what are these departments like? Was this one person's experience completely their own? Did other people feel a certain way about that? Is this, is this more widespread than not? Because you don't look anytime there's change within a company, people will feel any which way about it. So there's the question of, does it rise to this level of there's something else going on? Mm-hmm. You know, that this is like perhaps a troubled workplace. And then what does that look like? But you don't just want, you know, one former employee who's disgruntled or whatever. You're trying to get, and this is where it goes back to everything. 
I'm just trying to talk to as many people as possible because I want to make sure that everybody independent of each other was seeing the same thing. So once you start having those conversations, do people start contacting you? Hmm. Because I, in my completely uninformed, like neophyte brain, mm-hmm. there start to be whispers within an organization that you're working on something. And that has two byproducts. One is people start coming to you and the other is the organization itself starts thinking about how it's going to respond. Yeah, I mean, they knew. The organization knew for... I remember I was at a dinner, in a birthday dinner for a dear friend of mine in Los Angeles when I became aware that the organization was in it, that they knew that that I had been working on this story for some time. Can you tell me how you figured that out? No. (laughs) Well, what was it like for you? And again, I'm not trying to to press you too much. I'm interested in your experience of it. No, that's fine. Yeah, you're doing your job. Um, What what did I think that night? Yeah, like what was that like for you? I mean, how does that change your process? Does it give you a fucking knot in your stomach? What happens? The first, when that happened, my first thought was, well, how much reporting do I have? Because, you know, them knowing it could potentially impact my ability to report going forward. But it actually didn't. But I. But by that point, I had. I had a lot. I had. I felt like we're, we're the meat. The the meat of the story. So, and then to your other point, which you brought up previously, and I. I think part of it's because it's the Lakers, and part of it's like it's ESPN. It became you know word got around. I don't know exactly how it got around. I you know I was talking to a lot of people, so it's not like I can just keep a tight lid on it forever. Somebody may say something to somebody, and then it gets further down the line. But there was a point where. I would try to reach out to new individuals and they knew exactly what I was calling about. And there, some of them were people who I'd never spoken to before. And I'm talking around the NBA. So that was interesting. They're like, I know what you're calling. I know what you're calling about. <laughs> and I'd say, oh, okay. They're like, yeah, I've heard. So is that, is that helpful? Uh, does it make it harder? Mm, I mean, yes, I guess because we could get right to the point and no, because sometimes they'd be like, yeah, I'm not going to, I'm not talking about this. Yeah. So, but yeah, that was interesting. I've, I've never worked on anything quite like that. That was, that was a journey. What was it like for you the day before that story came out? So the week leading up to it being published, I think magic went on our air with Stephen A. Smith and called Rob Palenka backstabber and some other things. And we were in the process, I think over the next few days of preparing it to be published. So I should just, anyone who's listening to this who did not intimately follow the soap opera of the Lakers, like <laughs> you've been working on your story for a long time. Magic Johnson was running the team with Rob Belenka and he resigned in quite informal and dramatic fashion. I have a story for you about that if right. you want it. Yeah, definitely. So the night that Magic resigned, I was probably as close to him as you and I are right now in the studio, a few feet away from um, I was there for the game. He stepped into this huddle of reporters after Luke Walton, the head, then the head coach, did his pregame media session, and he just he resigned. It was a forty-five minute talk. Everyone's jaws were on the floor. Staffers were looking on with bewilderment. He had said that he hadn't told anybody in the organization that he was doing it. He was doing it publicly for the first time. People were just. It was one of the most surreal nights. Just that. Just. Well, especially because you'd been reporting around him so they, for uh, months. That was, so my phone, so word gets out, people start messaging me saying, is he resigning because of your impending story? And I'm still trying to wrap my head around the moment. He goes, he starts walking down kind of the tunnel in Staples Center because he says, I need to go tell the boss, the Lakers owner, Jeannie Buss, who's 
I guess he thinks he's going to meet her on the loading dock or whatever, meet her when she arrives and tell her. And she ultimately doesn't come. So he stands around for a bit and he's talking to some reporters. And I was talking to an editor about like, what are we going to do with this story? And then he goes over kind of towards where the loading dock is at Staples Center. And there's maybe only five reporters around him or six or seven. It's pretty small. And I was talking with my editor about it. And then I decided to kind of walk towards him because in case he's saying something, I didn't mean, I don't know. I don't want to miss anything. And right as I approached, he started answering a question about if he was resigning because of an impending ESPN story that allegedly would detail some dysfunction in the organization tying to him. So I was standing there on the night that he resigned, listening to him talk about a story that I had been working on for some time. And that was that was something I'll never forget. That was pretty wild. Did you so, ask him questions about it? No. I, he, he spoke for like 300 words. And um, I think I turned to my editor while he was talking and I made some kind of face like, you know, he, and then I later met with my editor and we were talking about like, okay, what's, what did he say? I think we actually ended up quoting some of him in the story. Um, he declined to comment multiple interview requests for the story, but some of the things he actually said that night made it in. So yeah. That must've been surreal. It was pretty surreal. Do you think that he did resign because of that story? No, I don't think so. I don't, I don't think, I mean, some of the things he said, I think are true that night that he resigned. It wasn't fun for him. It was, you know, I, he was, and he had said this before and been accused of it, of being gone a lot. And I think in the current NBA, doing that job is very, very demanding time-wise. And I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of reasons. He talked about it. He said, I want to be magic. And that's something much bigger than maybe the day-to-day grind of, of that position. All right. So take me back to uh, the day before that story hits. What oh, was, yes. The day was, before. Was... Okay. So anyway, so in the days leading up, we're doing all the basic things getting things ready, answering questions from editors, you know, how solid do we feel about this, about that. There were certain things I was trying even up until the night before to, you know, how can, can we confirm this more, how, whatever. And then I think I got a message at 6 or 7 p.m. about, like, all right, you know, barring anything unforeseen, this story is going to go live at 7 a.m. Eastern tomorrow morning. And then I, I talk with my editor, and they're like, you know, a lot of the producers in the company are going to be reaching out about various TV shows that we're going to need you on tomorrow to talk about it. And so then I was on the phone with a lot of them and I think I was, my first TV hit was like 4 a.m. And then I went to the studio in, in downtown LA, the our big production center and was there till 7 p.m. So like, you know, 8 a.m. to 7 p.m. <laughs> doing a lot of TV hits and radio hits every 15 minutes and trying to subsist on coffee. And yeah, it was it was it was a long day, that's for sure. Was it fun? Um, that story again for people who are listening who do not follow sports closely, like that was the only thing people were talking about in sports that day. I never had a story quite like that. Um, was it fun? I mean, I was proud of the work. I was proud of the work that a lot of people put into it and felt it mattered, and was happy to talk about it and answer any questions anyone had about it and to explain deeper context and whatever it could be. It was pretty surreal, like just seeing how it became. And again, where ESPN was a high profile story about a really high profile team and really high profile individuals. So I was caught up in the storm, I guess, a little bit. I mean, 
during that day, I'm just trying to be wherever I need to be at a specific time to be, you know, it's <laughs> right. like, it's like, all right, Get what time is light, Lights flashed on you. Yeah. It's like, okay, done, where yeah. I need to be now, who, who do I need to be on the phone with now? Whatever. So, yeah. There was another thing happening that day, which was that Magic was on other ESPN shows, basically like denying pretty large parts of your story. I mean, that's his right. He can do that. But what, what was that like for you? I mean, because he had worked for us before and done other things for us before, I wasn't really thinking about it too much. I mean, I was listening to what he was saying very carefully to get a sense of, you know, it's just like anything. If a story comes out and people come out and then they deny it, you're listening like, well, what are they denying? Are they calling certain facts inaccurate? Are they just being general about the way they're denying it or that kind of stuff? So I was listening to it carefully in that way. But there has to be something a little strange about like... um having those denials come from inside the house. Like you were on an ESPN show talking about your story and the soundness of your reporting. And then the next like half hour, the subject of your story was on the ESPN show saying that your reporting was bullshit. Well, if he wants to come on a big sports platform and, you know, issue the loudest denial that he can, Kind of makes sense, I guess. <laughs> that's I mean, place, that's the place to go. I mean, but, yeah, yeah. But, but here's my, I mean, here's my question. I'm sure you can't talk about this too much, uh, but like that feels to me like part of the double-edged sword of working at ESPN. And you know, I had Don Van Natta on the show years ago, and we talked about this too. Like, the NFL is one of ESPN's biggest partners, and he writes big investigative pieces that the NFL does not like. Watching you that day. And then, did, like, you, did you watch that day? Really? I watched some stuff. Yeah, oh, Max. I was into it, man. I was Thank excited. You. That, that story was great. Oh, I'm, I'm a big Baxter fan, man. That felt like oh. a, that felt like a big day. But oh. here, here's the thing: like watching you do that, and then having Magic Johnson talking to Stephen A. Smith, being like that Baxter Holmes kid doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about. Uh, seems kind of wild. And and the NBA is also a critical partner of ESPN's. Mm-hmm. Uh, Magic Johnson's a former employee of ESPN. Like, there's a lot of uh, interconnected stuff there. There's like, so, there's a lot of hands washing a lot of I, other hands. I totally get. I totally get what you're saying. On the side of the company where I work on, and I think Don has talked about this too. I think I remember the exact conversation you guys were having. I've never felt any pressure from anything. It's about the journalism and the work and getting it right. I've never felt or seen or heard, and I think a lot of the investigative journalism that we've done even having to do with our own business partners that's come out shows that so I've, i never have felt anything other than support from editors to pursue and dig as deep as you can and get to the bottom of it and we will shepherd this through and go through the process and whatnot and there's a lot of people at the company who are incredibly well trained in that and i'm sure that people in any company have to weigh all kinds of things when you're at the very top and you have to deal with that type of stuff but that never has gotten anywhere close to me. And there wasn't a part of you that like had, you know, you'd been trying to interview Magic Johnson for months. <laughs> <laughs> and then he was, I assume you were doing those hits in LA, right? Yeah. Like how far away were you guys? Like uh, physically, how far away were you? Was oh, he in the same building? He wasn't. Yeah, he was in the same building um, for what, whatever. I think when he was on with Stephen A. Smith and uh, Michael Wilbon. We I wasn't, but I wasn't. I wasn't where they were at. I wasn't particularly close to where they were at. It's a fairly big building. But just like, we can just acknowledge that that is 
pretty nuts. That's pretty crazy experience, right? You write a big story about a guy. Uh, the guy won't talk to you for the story. You go to your place of work to discuss the story on your uh, employer's multi-platform <laughs> sports experience. And like on channel one is you being like, yes, I reported this story for months. I cannot discuss my sourcing, but like it has been vetted through every proper journalistic channel. And then on like on the other channel is the source that wouldn't talk to you being like, that guy doesn't know what he's talking about. So the, the way you put it is, yeah, I totally can see that. I think I was probably just so close to it that day and trying to keep up with everything that I maybe didn't, I wasn't, I just wasn't thinking about it. And I don't, I mean, you know, I'm still really close to it. So I was just, I was thinking about the nuts and bolts of what I was trying to do and what I needed to, to be done. And I, and I totally understand the, the, it's like, well, you're reporting on something that we're in business with this company. It, we're a very big company. We have a lot of different kinds yeah. of interests and I'm in a very particular part of it that does this thing. I mean, most of my bandwidth is just spent trying to think about who's the next person I can call. What's this detail that's missing? Am I really getting to the heart of the story? What is the story really about? And that's where it all is at. I try not to think about anything that's outside my control. Yeah. I am an incredibly low person on the totem pole. So I just <laughs> want to try to cover my bases and do the simple things because the job is tough enough. So that's where I try to spend my energy. All right. Is the NBA sort of like a... Uh a rich enough place that this is what you can cover for years and years to come. I oh, know there's so many stories. I mean, and here's the thing. Sorry to cut you off. That's okay. There's so many stories. And I think in sports, you can, you can get at so many things through the lens of sports. You can tell so many stories through sports that are really about something much, much bigger. They're about like culture or humanity or, you know, relationships or, leadership or like managing a workplace or whatever uh the the best thing anybody can ever tell me like after a story comes out was i don't even like sports and i really enjoyed that story because i think sports fans will read a certain story they'll read this they'll read about sports because they love sports nba fans will read about the nba because they love the nba i want to get the people who don't care about either of those things so I'm often trying to write about much bigger things. And the thing I've learned about sports is like it crosses the Venn diagram is enormous. Um, so like the two part series that I did about youth basketball, that's in a lot of ways, that's a story just about parenthood. Absolutely. But it's, it's, it's a story that's told through the lens of like some really heartbreaking instances of like kids breaking down. But it's really a story about parenthood. And I had an editor, Steve Padilla, who once talked about how you can boil every story down to one word. What is this story really about? And sometimes I'll put... Or I'll, I'll either put it at the top of like a, a working draft or I'll think about it. Like, this is what this story is really about. And you can tell an incredible, you know, the stories about love and fear and parenthood and leadership and the power of connection and all kinds of stuff. So sports is incredibly rich. When you were thinking about being a sports reporter, when you're getting like obsessed with this in college and showing up at the Globe in 2008, how close has your experience now that you really are able to write the stories that you want to write and do the work that you want to do. How close is your experience hue to what you thought it was going to be like? Oh, I don't even know what I thought back then. I just thought, I just thought I was terrible. I thought it was like, so I remember like of all the interns, we would have these sessions where we would like read each other's work or the, the internship coordinator would read our work. 
and they would have the most beautiful stories and their leads were like poetry. And I just, I remember I'd just sink into my chair being like, I'm the charity case that they accepted into this program. And, you know, I just, I, I didn't have a lot of confidence or, or anything at that point. So I don't know what I thought anything would be, you know, moving forward. I, to your question, I do feel like I'm able to tell the kind of stories that I want to tell and that I care about and am deeply passionate about and emotionally invested in and the kind of things I wake up and I'm really excited to dig into and get to the bottom of. But I don't know. I mean, I didn't know what I... Back then, I, I was wondering what I was doing there. So, <laughs> and just trying not to... Yeah, it's just like, please, just don't don't embarrass yourself. <laughs> but you're not feeling that way anymore. I mean, I feel okay. I'm not going to say that I could... I, I think I think uh, Greg Popovich has a thing. He has a saying about appropriate fear, like about before playing an opponent, you want to have appropriate fear. And Steve Kerr talks about that a lot. The head of the coach of the Golden State Warriors, you know, we need to have appropriate fear. I but I also feel a responsibility again to the reader's attention and their time. Like I owe you as much of myself as possible to make this worth your time because you can go in a million other directions versus spending 15, 20 minutes with me and something that I worked on for a long time. So I don't ever want to cheat that. I don't ever want to take it for granted. And if I can make you feel a certain way or, or move you or something's, you know, like I've gotten messages from parents who pulled their kids out of youth basketball or they're like, we're not going to specialize or things like that because of the story. And that's been really heartwarming. There's all kind. There's there's a variety of things I've heard about stuff like that. You know, certainly the Lakers story. I've gotten messages from a variety of people who were in really troubling workplaces that were not in sports at all, and they would talk to me about this particular boss they had and what it was like, and having PTSD from that, and trying to move on, and how no one on the outside knows what it's like to walk into a workplace like that unless you're in it, and the toll that that takes on you as a person. So that's been rewarding. You know, the story I did about. Um, the Spurs coach, Rick Popovich. A lot of people message me. So for the listeners, he it's a story about him using the dinner table and being obsessed with the dinner table. But that's he brings people to dinner to forge connections and relationships with him. And a lot of people, not a lot, but people message me after that went out and they said, this is really a study in managing employees and leadership and how to not just make your employees feel like they're not, you know, you, you want them to feel like they're people too. So I'm trying to get at certain themes like that you know, ways to tell things beyond. And so that's, yeah, I am happy with the stuff I get to tell these days. Sure. I'm so glad. I mean, we'll see. That's, I'm glad too, I guess. I'm glad. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm waiting till the very end, but I do want to talk to you about that Popovich story um, for a couple of reasons. One is, it's just a lovely story. And the other was, uh, he seems great. Like he seems like a, a legitimately like great person, and I wonder. I guess I wonder whether you share that opinion. Like, when you're writing about someone like that, do you like them, and does that matter? The thing that formed my opinion was the way people spoke about him, who shared all these experiences with him, who worked with him. They spoke about him with such incredible reverence that I mean, it was like and, and unlike anybody I've ever talked to, like true to the marrow respect and love and saying the way he makes you feel 
that you matter, the way he makes you feel like your voice matters, your opinion matters, the way he cares about you, not as an employee, but a human being and trying to understand, you know, where you're from, what's your family like, what matters to you. Let's talk about all kinds of things aside from basketball. It was impressive. It was, um, and the way people talked about these experiences at the table with him and how much he poured of himself in that and how much he cared. But it's also a tool. I mean, he can be a demanding person, but if he is just that demanding, incredibly intense person all the time, it can burn people out. We There's leaders all the time like that. You know, editors, chefs, whatever. Um, so the way in which he uses the table as a way to balance his own life and a way to balance and create meaningful relationships was really special. And the other thing I would say is this, They've been so consistently like a Swiss watch for like two plus decades under his watch. Of playing, the Spurs. Yeah, the San Antonio Spurs are playing a certain way at a really high level. As dynasties have risen and fallen, you could set your watch. It's like death taxes in the Spurs. The Spurs are going to be really good every year. They're going to play a certain way. There's going to be players on their team you never heard of who are really good. And you're like, how does this work? How does any company be that good for that long and performing at that high of a level? And so getting a sneak peek behind the scenes of like a really intimate setting where a lot of that is forged was was something I probably became pretty obsessive about because I, I like a lot of people want to know why and there's other th- I mean it's not just there there's other things that go into it but he is a master of forming relationships with people and building a connection and the way people spoke about him was unlike anything I'd ever heard did you spend time with him no he doesn't do interviews about his private life that's kind of a stock thing but um I mean, I don't know how many people I talked with who were more than happy to describe these experiences um, with him and what they meant. And they were just like happy to, you know, brag about him and just like say, here's all these different experiences and here's what he means to me and here's all the things people don't know about him that make him special and great and whatnot. So, Do you think you read the story? I feel confident that he read the story. Um, he was at a restaurant in San Francisco not too long ago. There was a photo posted about this having dinner with Steve Kerr and this particular restaurant I had written about in my story in the way that when he recommends a restaurant, it becomes like the go-to restaurant in the NBA community. His word carries a lot of weight because he's been in food and wine for 50 years and he cares about it, you know, according to some as intensely as he does about basketball. And he was having dinner there and I was told that people kept coming up to him in the restaurant and saying that they were there because they read that he loved that place and they were there on his word, basically. And I, somebody there told me that he loved it and was like smiling and laughing and he thought it was great. And he, that's, he wants to share great food and wine with people. So I think that's probably part of it. But I did get some positive marks from people in the Popovich universe. And I definitely felt like I wanted to do justice to that one. I mean, you want to do justice to every story, but the way people talked about him and how sacred these nights were, I was like, and what it meant for their culture and how kind of revered their culture is, I thought, man, I I want to capture the heart of this. So I, I worked on that. I think I started it in November 2017 in, the, in terms of gathering material, and it came out, what, April of 2019? Yeah. So it was a little while. Have you always been as into food and wine as you are now? No, no. I'm looking for stories maybe in places where other people aren't looking like where's a where's a potentially a great story that's an uncovered story something I can tell people that they've never heard before and it just so happened that there were some 
stories in those realms that were I thought potentially untold. I didn't even mean journalistically. I mean you yourself are just like oh yeah, no, yeah. The answer is no. Yeah, I I mean was that popular story part of what got you into it? Mm, I was working on the NBA, so I did this story about how wine was becoming obsessive in the NBA, or right. NBA was like this booming love of it. And anytime I would mention those two words to anybody in the NBA world or in the restaurant world who I'd met through the NBA wine story. I'd say like NBA wine, they'd say, oh man, Greg Popovich. And they'd say, that guy, he knows as much about food and wine as anybody I've ever met. When he comes in, we shut the restaurant down. It's such an honor to have him. He'll stand in the kitchen and just watch the synchronicity and the timing and the teamwork and the precision of what we do. He speaks our language. He's the most generous person we've ever seen, the most humble person we've ever seen. I really, there was a point where I was like, this, there's no way there's anybody like this. Like It's all <laughs> legends and folklore. Yeah. And then, but it was, I kept hearing it more and more and more. And I gathered, I don't know, I don't know how many pages of of interviews. It just kept going and going. And um, that was, yeah. So, so I, yeah, I'm just, I'm looking for a good story wherever that may be. I'm, I think a lot of the job is you're just trying to become an expert in a, for whatever that story is about. So you got to learn as much as you can so you can tell it as well as it can be told. And then we'll see where the next good story is. And it could be about anything. Who knows? Do you get close to these guys like do you get to know them like truly know them that's interesting i think it's hard to really truly know anybody i mean i don't know i probably get to i I certainly get to know some people you know maybe it's because they're like passionate about wine or whatever or food or you know they had a kid who played youth basketball and was ground down by it and so you get to know him on a little bit more personal level there versus just some reporter who's asking him a question about a trade or why this happened and whatnot. But I don't know. I like even so Popovich, I feel like I know him more just by the amount of effort I poured into that story and hearing everything. But do I truly know him? Or I mean, no, I don't think so. I mean, and other people who I've who I've written about a lot. In some cases, many, many times, do I truly know them? I don't think so. I think, and I think it'd honestly be kind of arrogant to think so. I mean, you never know who, I guess, someone really is. And even though our job is, look, there's always this wall anyway. I'm always the journalist, and they are the person on the other side of it. It's kind of up to them how much they're going to let me in. It's my job to maybe fight for a little bit of that and to try. But is it always going to be like the doors are completely open? Here's my soul. Have at it. I don't know. And maybe that's just, you know, human relationships in general. There's always, people always kind of put up a wall with anybody else. So I get to know them better. It's my job to, but I don't, I don't feel like I know them, like really know them in that kind of way. If that answers your question. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Well, I feel like I know you pretty well now. Do you? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) No, yes. Thank you, man. I appreciate that. (laughs) Thanks for doing it. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Janelle Pfeiffer, and our intern is Louisa Garbowit. Our sponsors are MailChimp and Pit Writers. Thanks very much to them, and thanks very much to Baxter Holmes. You can find his writing on ESPN.com. He is a true mensch. See you next week.
Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.